If you're looking to buy or sell pre-IPO stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. Since 2009, SharesPost has transacted more than $4 billion in the top private tech companies. Proven, trustworthy, secure. Visit us at SharesPost.com. Coming up on Equity, Walmart outmaneuvers Amazon. Robinhood is worth a ton of money for some reason. Dropbox reports its first ever quarterly earnings, and MoviePass is not doing so well. Welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Matthew Lindley, and I'm joined by Silicon Valley editor Connie Loizos. Hello, Matthew. Crunchbase News Editor-in-Chief Alex Wilhelm. Hello. And our guest today is August Capital General Partner Vili Ilchev. Hello. Did I get that title right? Yes, okay. perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it's always important to get their name right and their title right, because the, the problem is in venture capital, uh, partner versus general Everyone's partner, partner versus managing partner versus director partner, general partner, it's all a big mess. Yeah. Anyways, partner. Okay, so, um, all right, so you guys remember Walmart? Uh, yeah. It's a big company, right? Anyways, so Walmart bought a controlling stake, a very, very big controlling stake in an Indian company called Flipkart. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Flipkart is sort of an e- as one of the biggest e-commerce companies in India. But the real story here is Walmart actually outmaneuvered Amazon, which is also trying to buy a controlling stake in Flipkart. This is a roundabout way of saying India is a massive market. Amazon really, really wanted to crack into it. And Walmart really, really, really wanted to crack into it. And it was Walmart that won this time, actually, whereas Amazon has been really, really aggressive about acquiring companies and diving into new markets, especially buying Whole Foods for whatever it was, $13.7 billion. So uh, how did this happen? (laughs) Well, first, let's talk about the numbers. So they bought 77% of Flipkart for about $16 billion. And if my division is correct, I don't know, fact check me here, that puts the value of Flipkart at about 20% billion total. So the question is, one, is that too much money for Flipkart? Because it had some problems a few years ago. And are we surprised that Walmart pulled ahead? I don't know. Well, f- uh, you know, another question is, could Amazon have bought this company? Because Amazon is in India. It has like a 35% market share. Meanwhile, Flipkart has a 35% market share. So if Amazon were to bought Flipkart, it's hard to see how regulators in the country would have let this go forward anyway. Uh, yeah, I don't have a lot of insight into the Indian uh, regulatory market re-antitrust, but in the U.S. that would be an issue. right? You couldn't do that here. I think it was a problem there as well. Ellie, do you know? I, I don't know the market share, but uh, one thing that I find interesting is... Uh, comparing and contrasting China and India. And uh, it seems to me, certainly uh, Amazon and Walmart and and others probably do do see India as a market where a foreign uh, enterprise can be successful. Uh, I don't think that that is the case uh, with China. Yeah, well, I mean, no one can get into China. Right. Not even Google or Facebook can get into China. Alibaba just is like has a sort of vice grip over e-commerce in that com- in that country. And if, if you believe that, then, you know, with one billion people, uh, you know, 20 billion to pay 20 billion bucks for potentially the winner in the market. Uh, it, it may be expensive today, but we may look at it three years from now and think that was a, an amazing bargain. And e-commerce in India, I think, right now is worth about $30 billion. And I've read maybe a Morgan Stanley report that said it's going to be something like $200 billion in maybe 10 years. So Whoa. it's huge. I mean, the opportunities are saying. So really what they've done is buy an option on the future growth of the Indian e-commerce market as opposed to buy an operating business today that's very valuable. Well, right. no, no doubt. No well, doubt. I mean, we may be like looking back 10 years from now if that's the case. I mean, it, honestly, it may even, be the, may even be the case that it goes faster than that because 
you know, technology is wildly unpredictable. Um, five years ago, we would have never thought that we'd have a computer talking to a customer service agent on the other end. Don't uh, make Google jokes. <laughs> They're banned. No, that wasn't a joke. <laughs> that was a terrifying reality we're in now. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, fl- Flipkart, what, they raised, what, seven something billion dollars? I think it was uh, $7.3 billion total life of the company. And just as a little bit of uh, background context, they were valued at $15 billion in 2015. But then both uh, T. Rowe Price and Morgan Stanley lowered their expected valuations for the firm. So there was a bit of turbulence over the last couple of years. And what Flipkart was worth was kind of an open question, which makes the, the acquisition price more interesting. But I mean, it's, it's sort of similar to what Vili said, which is there are two or three green markets left for e-commerce in the world. China is pretty much locked down. You can't get in there. There's Africa. In Africa, there's just a lot, not, not a lot of infrastructure and so much e-commerce, e-commerce, quote unquote, happens on like WhatsApp and Instagram and things like that. And then there's India, where you have companies like Xiaomi coming in and getting massive adoption, where the smartphone market is starting to pick up a lot of speed and, the, and you're starting to see a lot of deploy, deployment of wireless networks. Things are get things are speeding up really quickly, and that's like that's where you want to be right now. If you if you're really gunning for maximum growth, that's definitely that's that's the option. It's smart, but I, Walmart's investors didn't seem to be completely convinced. They had uh, I think think six point eight billion in cash on hand as of January, and they're taking on uh, debt to fund this transaction. And I think you know they're sort of feeling a little bit conflicted about its global domination plans. Well, I, I think. Duking it out in another market, paying a big price to go fight Amazon and now in India, uh, you know, it, it it shows that Walmart is willing to put up a fight, uh, but the struggle is there, the loss in market share is there, and, you know, I'm not sure spending 20 million bucks uh, to acquire market share in India is particularly encouraging. It may turn out to be a good thing for Walmart, but you know there's there's, not, there's nothing to cheer about right now. Amazon, to your point, has thirty five percent market share in India. So. I mean, I mean, it's and Walmart has made some like surprisingly agile moves in the past couple of years, right? They bought Jet uh, or Mark Lore, depending on who you talk to. Yeah, that's my question. <laughs> what did they actually buy? There was an operating uh, or a no, but they person. bought Bonobos. They bought a lot of. They've lot of bought a brand. They've bought a lot of brands. They're playing the SKU game. You know, Amazon is playing for, you know, playing the sort of volume game. Mark Walmart's playing the SKU game. And, you know, where else to where else would you go other than a market where you can sort of flood it with a ton of options? Say, like, this is, you know, you can literally buy whatever you want. And they've already, you know, I think earlier this year, maybe last year, they partnered with JD.com or, you know, oh, yeah. they've like struck a relationship with Rakuten. I think they're selling their ebooks here and Rakuten is meanwhile helping them with their online grocery strategy in Japan. So this is certainly a company that's, you know, wants to be everywhere. They can be. I think they're trying. I think you have to give them credit that they're aggressively trying to compete. Uh, I'm not sure we can say the same thing about Target. I haven't seen a stock price of Target, but my guess is Walmart is doing better than Target. Oh, maybe, I tell me, that to, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Target. I, I don't know. Target is, is not good. Um, <laughs> but here's, here's a data point. So last uh, September, 2017, Amazon said it would invest about $5 billion into the Indian market. And that was around the same time, if I have my dates correct, that SoftBank put money into Flipkart. How much? Like a billion something, right? A billion and a half. Yeah. But they'd raised 1.4 earlier in the year from Tencent at all. Speaking so, of China. Speaking yeah. of China. So they raised a bunch of money, got acquired. Amazon promised a huge investment in the Indian ecosystem. So essentially what we're going to see here is a repeat of the U.S. market, which is Amazon v. Walmart. Walmart trying to catch up in the e-commerce space in India, which I would not have guessed if you'd asked me before this all shook out. I would, that would not have been my, like my, you know, 
approximate um, interval. But anyways, I, I'm stoked about it, but I'm curious how much money they're willing to lose because the U.S. business of Walmart can only float so much losses in the Indian market. Well, how much money did Uber lose in China? Two billion? Well, Uber doesn't like have to make money because it's not a real company. <laughs> Yet. Yes, Yet. no earnings report. <laughs> well, one of my favorite aspects of this story was the head of SoftBank, Masayoshi Sun, sort of announcing the deal before Walmart had a chance. He was on a call with journalists and investors. And I don't really know how much of a mistake this was, to be honest, or a way to sort of help seal the deal. But he said something like... Um, uh, you know, oh, I think we announced it last night. If not, well, that means I'm just spouting this out. And then apparently he later added a Japanese phrase that equates to oops. <laughs> and said, it's done now. You know, there's no taking it back. Here's the thing, though. You can't make a mistake if you don't give a shit. And you have to bleep that out. I'm sorry, but I had to use the proper word for it. Like, you can't, you can't, you can't mess up if you don't care. And I don't think, I don't think he cares. He's, he's walking around with what, like 50 billion left in his. No, he definitely cares. He's got to oh. return that fund. <laughs> he would he's not. Start then he would not be spending so much money on WAG shares if he was going to return that fund. I mean, this is if you remember, like five years ago, we were scratching our heads over how Andrews and Horowitz was going to return a two billion dollar fund. Well, we so. still are, in, in, in fairness, that still, uh, I mean, remains to be seen. Coinbase, ten group think, bonds. Is the idea. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> our guest is is not uh, talking right now. You'll know there's a there's a silence in that corner of the office. Right. Not a topic I can touch. <laughs> yeah. well, uh, speaking of returning uh, ridiculous investments, uh, we have another ridiculous investment, um, or not ridiculous if you're into cryptocurrency. Um, Robinhood. Robinhood. How do we feel about Robinhood, Alex? Uh, well, so the big news is that Robinhood's uh, Series D, I think, closed. It was $363 million at a $5.6 billion valuation. Now, this was rumored back in March, and I thought I had taken some accidental mushrooms because there's no way those numbers could be correct, and then time proved to be more silly than I thought. So it did happen. Now, DST led this again, bringing their total raised capital to $549 million. Is this the biggest DST deal since Facebook or Twitter? Because they haven't done any massive deals, right, lately? It's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. They're like the OG SoftBank, in a way. <laughs> I, I mean, there, there's so much to talk about here. First, let's start with uh, Robinhood, which um, I find fascinating because the insight they had was it is so expensive to acquire a brokerage user that if you use free trades as a way to lure accounts, um, you can really disrupt the brokerage industry. And that is really how they got going. That was the innovation. It was brilliant. It cost between $500 and $1,500 to acquire an account holder. That's a lot of trades you can give away uh, in order for you to be in the negative on that Oh, so deal. It, it cost the, the legacy brokers yeah. 500 to 1500 yeah. to acquire, it, but it didn't cost Robinhood that much. That's right. It okay. costs nothing other than the free trades, which are 5 bucks or less per trade. So... You know, I th I think uh, they they can afford to give a lot of free trades uh, and acquire users very efficiently, and that's what they did. They have four million accounts today, which is bigger than E Trade, mm -hmm. uh, and they acquired those accounts on a fraction of what it would have cost and has cost E Trade to acquire those accounts. So that is the brilliance. That's the innovation, uh, at least on the marketing side, that they brought to the table. And now, what what is exciting about them is they are not limiting themselves to being the best broker or the biggest broker. They're saying, let's go build the next fidelity for millennials and for the online world. Uh, and I think that is interesting. That has a lot of potential and, and upside if they can execute that strategy that would require them to become a bank and become regulated and blah, blah, blah. But 
there, there, there's a lot of interesting things going on there. Well, I mean, Robinhood is this, I feel like they have this interesting strategy, which is bring your money in here and then move it around because they've, they've, they have this portfolio of products. I mean, you can you could say like, oh, it's just trading. Well, but, but technically they're products, right? They're a crypto trading platform in 10 states or something like that. They are an options trading platform and they're an equities trading platform. And those are three completely different things. And they're a margin provider. And the, and yeah, so the, these are these are completely different things. And yet it's one interface where I put in money and then I move it around. I, and I don't know if it's sort of attracting different customers. I mean, one million of those four million people signed on when they announced crypto. And I think they had another huge waiting list for their options uh, program, which they rolled out maybe earlier this year. I think Robinhood is really fascinating. And I think it's, yeah, I think it's very easy to sort of underestimate the, the company's ambitions. The CEO, co-CEO Vlad Teneva said repeatedly, we want to become a full service uh, financial institution. One thing that kind of concerns me about the fund, the, the um, service though, um, and maybe this is sort of like the... You know, parenting me, I don't know, but is it's got a lot of young first-time investors, and these are very sophisticated products it's offering, and it does really push its margin product heavily too. You know, so you've got crypto, you've got options. I think even their options, they've changed the language from puts and calls to up and down. So I worry a little bit about uh, the people that are you know gravitating into the platform and whether or not they really know what they're doing. So this isn't the fidelity for millennials. This is the fidelity for children. So, <laughs> so I, I think I think that's a great point. We uh, at August Capital, the largest uh, in investor in Avant, uh, Avant Credit, which is a large online lending company. And the, the, the philosophy we have to the whole financial fintech space is we think uh, uh, regulatory and compliance is a moat. And the way to build a lasting uh, business in, in this space is doing it uh, the long, the long way uh, by really focusing on compliance and doing it the right way, uh, and so what you're describing is actually very worrisome to the extent they're uh, loose um, uh, on on the regulatory side. Uh, I would be very worried. I, I don't know that's true, but. Uh, certainly, it's gotten a lot of companies in trouble. Avant being one of them, right? Didn't no, Avant? not Avant. It was oh, a competitor. Okay. It was okay, Landing okay. Club. I mean, another thing that is going to be interesting, I, I did ask a lot about this for a hot minute. You got to report your gains <laughs> to the IRS. <laughs> like, And is that, I mean, has any, you know, if you if I'm a 22-year-old and I, you know, I'm walking out with student debt or something like that, and all of a sudden I'm like, ooh, Robin Hood, I probably don't know how to think about capital gains or liquidation or things like that. Especially Do they not when, provide 1099s? Well, no, they're, they, they're, they're working on it. But for, but for example, if I'm launching a crypto product, the idea is like, well, I have until next calendar year to work that out, right? That's... So hard, so so so, so I, I actually tweeted on this topic, um, and I'm very frustrated that the the crypto brokers do not provide 1099s or 98s, whatever it is, the the your gains mm -hmm. for the year. Um, it's my understanding actually the IRS is not allowing them to provide these forms to their users. Why? So I don't un fully understand it. I think there's a story to be written there. Mm -hmm. I would go <laughs> and... <laughs> are, you are you giving us homework on the podcast? <laughs> I, I, I am, because I want to understand why the IRS is not pushing the crypto brokers to uh, require, uh, require them to, um, to report gains. 
Okay. Um, we have to move along. We can spend all day on this, but quickly, uh, in April of 17, the last time they raised, uh, they raised like 110 at a $1.3 billion valuation. So th- it's a magical amount of value creation on paper for this company in the last uh, 13 months. Just something to keep in mind. Well, I mean, whatever. But the point is, people were willing to buy a lot of their stock at a very high price. And that, that to me, is either going to be really brilliant and look prescient or look kind of silly. And I'm very curious to see um, if it's going to be one way or the other, or as they would put it in the options terms, up or down. Um, but anyway, let's, move, let's move on. It will, cer- it will certainly be one or the other. <laughs> you only have two options. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> anyways, so uh, let's go on to companies that uh, are under scrutiny and can be watched by by uh, Wall Street and things like that, which is Dropbox. Um, so Dropbox went public earlier this year. It went pretty well for them. Uh, they went public at where they had a sh- uh, price of like twenty one dollars, and they went up straight up to like thirty something dollars, forty percent pop on day one. And uh, it's gone pretty well for them. So they now reported their first ever earnings report. Dun, and dun, dun. Enterprise Company, shocker, it's fine. No, it's better than fine. Slightly better than fine. Slightly better than fine. Well, kind of. We were talking about this before the show. I promised we'd save it. So the well, why don't you walk us through the numbers? So its quarterly revenue for the first quarter is $316.3 million. Uh, estimates for that for Wall Street were $308.7 million. And again, well, we talk about these as sort of like barometers because this is how people gauge whether and calibrate their models going forward and how they sort of project for future earnings, stock price valuation, blah, 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 blah. Anyways, quarterly, first quarter earnings adjusted $0.08 cents per share adjusted compared to expectations about $0.05 cents adjusted per share, $11.5 million paying users. It's a good amount of users, um, up from 9.3 million paying users in Q1 last year, and free cash flow of about 51.9 million, down from 56.5 million in the same period last year. So they had more revenue, more adjusted profit, slightly less free cash flow. Yes. And we were talking about how they beat expectations, but the stock price is currently down 3% as of Thursday afternoon, and how that might be the case. Well, I think what Dropbox has accomplished over the last two years is nothing short of spectacular. They basically doubled the size of the company and kept uh, cost, the cost of service, the gross margin line, cost of sales uh, flat on nominal basis, which is just spectacular. They increased their gross margins to the mid-70s, which in this business is amazing. I used to work at Box. I know how hard that is uh, when you're selling uh, you know uh, what is perceived as a um, a, as a commodity, as storage to, to customers. Um, so th- that's extraordinary. Now, why would the stock uh, fall? You know, it is the first time I think in many years uh, that gross margins were flat or actually slightly lower. So that indicates that that upward trajectory in margins is. Maybe at an end. Potentially over. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing is, uh, you know, let's be honest. Dropbox is an amazing company, but they're valued at, I don't know, 10 oh, times it's revenue. It's 11 uh, and a half trailing before earnings today. So call it 10 times current year or nine times current year. That's an incredibly high multiple. Uh, and, and their gross margins are, you know, good, mid-70s, but they're not Salesforce margins, which are part of gross margins are 90%. And that's a big driver of what your potential profitability is. So I think you know, they, they have a very different, very efficient model, but it all, all boils down to if gross margins are kind of where they are, 
growth for the company is already in the 20% range, high 20s, but you know uh, gravity where gravity goes. Um, and so investors are building their models and they're saying, well, given these facts, that's where I think valuation settles and it's perhaps slightly lower than, but you know, uh, over the next few quarters, people are gonna kind of settle down and see what real value is here. I mean, if, if we've asked that question, I feel like for a half decade now is has has Dropbox passed that profitability window? Have they have they passed that sort of escape velocity window, and now they're starting to hit that gravity wall, right? That, that you're talking about, and it's. I think you're. I think you're right that in two years they effectively pulled a pull pivot, right? Well, not not like a full pivot, but like they they sort of built an enterprise business out out of scratch from scratch in two, three, four years or so, which is pretty impressive. They have you know several hundred thousand businesses on Dropbox or something along those lines, um, and they still like they have there's this sort of wonky hybrid model. The one thing that stood out to me is if I'm remembering this correctly is that so they you know their uh, non gap gross margin was seventy four point two percent, their gap gross margin was sixty one point nine percent. There is a hefty distance in stock-based compensation, and Twitter gets dinged for this constantly for having crazy stock-based compensation. That's totally normal for a company, right? My 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 compensation package if I'm coming in for at like a senior AI car, you know, machine learning engineer, I expect to make like three million dollars, and a company like Google will be like, okay, well, you can have two million in stock or something like that, right? Probably like higher stock. Those are, those are yeah, those are like I'm throwing numbers out, right? But most a lot of compensation is locked up in stock. That being said, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I I just don't know what else is in that. That's a huge discrepancy in the order of probably a hundred million dollars. So I don't know what's driving it. Um, I don't know if there's any amortization of the hardware they buy for their data center, which there should be. I don't know if they back that out. I don't know what else they back. Like, I don't know if the free users mm-hmm. are also part of the delta uh, in how they report non-GAAP. So that's a question for me, but point stands. You know, it, it's expensive in the Valley now. And But you know what, you know what Box used to do, at least, was, was explain to people the actual cost of their free users in their earnings reports. There was a little line item if you searched for it. It was in there. It, it, it would, absolutely was. It would be great to have that for Dropbox to solve this problem. You know what they could do for us is tell us more things so we could understand the picture more clearly. Please, please do that. Non sequitur. Non sequitur. Here we go. So moving from companies that are doing very well, and the question is how well they're doing. Here's a company that's not doing well. Uh, the ever kind of half dead movie passes parent company is apparently now in even more trouble. And to kind of give you a context for how much trouble Helios and Matheson Analytics is in, uh, their share price is off 93% in the last three months, or 72% in the last five days, or 22% today. So it's not going well. Lindley, you watch movies. What's going on? I don't watch movies. You don't watch movies. Well, you didn't, you picked this topic, so you better have something. <laughs> we have come full circle to this business is too damn good to be true. Uh, <laughs> so we're, we are we are all the way back in 2003, 2004. I think 2003, 2004, right? Um, so Helios and Matheson had about $15.5 million in cash on hand, plus another $27.9 million in accounts receivable. And... The firm says it burns $21.7 million every month while it charges users $10 a month to see a movie every single day. Add those numbers up, and it's a negative. So that's not, that's, that's not a good thing. So they have less than a month of cash on hand. Well, I mean, so so the the idea here is that, you know, is Helios and Matheson a company that can go a la Elon Musk and go just go raise a ton of money and say, this business makes sense at scale, we promise. 
And the, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to know if that's the case because obviously it's $10 per movie per day, per day. And the idea being that, you know, maybe we can collect enough data and use that as a way to advertise, or maybe we can work with, work with uh, theaters in terms of like how, how we can deal with concessions, which is actually like a pretty big revenue stream for th- movie theaters. Remembering correctly is like selling soda or a lot of movie theaters sell beer now and things like that. Right. But can we, can we cobble together this Frankenstein business a year from now, two years from now, six months from now, theoretically, where ten dollars a di- ten dollars a month is a good idea for one movie per day per user. How, how? There's so many things that have to fall in place. I mean, that's the problem. You could sort of see this business working, but like for the movie executives hate it because they're like, look, either you're going to condition our uh, users to uh, you know want to pay this reduce costs and then you're going to go out of business or you're going to become so powerful that you're going to put us out of business. So they don't want to accommodate these guys. Also, they have 19 days worth of cash. Though. I don't know, but the six, <laughs> this, this well, six month plan, 10 year plan, they have, they, they don't to, have enough but cash. But to his point, I think I've read, I don't know, I but that they have access to, they've said hundreds of millions of dollars of debt. Is, does anybody know whether or not? That's I mean, that, if, if, if that's true, I mean, that's just. I have more. access to three hundred million dollars in debt. <laughs> You're not Dropbox's credit facility, but really you were going to say something. Well, I, I was going to say I don't know a whole lot about this business. What strikes me as interesting here is in those all-you-can-eat business models, your top five or one percent of users account for the vast majority of your cost. And I don't know how you can build a business without factoring that or somehow limiting your exposure to, in this business, your biggest fans are not your most profitable customers, but your worst customers. And that's a really tough place to be. Right, so they were saying that ideally people would go to the movies once a month, which frankly, like that would make sense, especially on the coast where we're paying like $16.50 for a movie ticket. $16, where are you going? No, no, 16, 16, (laughs) which is a lot. But um, right to your point, so even if you know ninety percent of the people are using the t- the pass once a month, there's that smaller percentage that's going to suck them dry, ostensibly. I mean, it's also the obviously we live in the Silicon Valley bubble of San Francisco, but the movie going experience is changing. If you look at a lot of theaters, like Alamo Drafthouse is a really good example that sort of just started blossoming. I think it started in Austin or Houston or something like that. You go there to eat and drink. And there's a movie going on, sure, right? I'm going to go see... I want to go watch The Last Jedi now before it ends up on my Apple TV or something like that. But I also want to like go to a bar and I want to eat food. That is, that's like a, a business model on top of a business model on top of a business model, right? The movie, the movie ticketing experience is actually like this sort, of, this sort of underlying platform that you build a restaurant slash bar on top of. Now, if I can go every single day... That's great for Alamo Drafthouse, but I don't know if it's a very good thing for the for the actual film providers that are that are sort of setting that are putting these films into Alamo Drafthouse that are expecting commissions that are expecting money from these ticket sales and things like that. I don't really know. I mean, I see the I see obviously the company's point that they're, that they're trying to re-energize the moving going audience. I mean, people have stopped going to movies. I haven't been to one since Norm of the North, which I was dragged to, it was about a polar bear fighting off a real estate developer. Please, Excuse people, me? if you haven't seen it, don't see it. <laughs> oh God, it was horrible. Um, in any case, so I'm not I'm not the target customer, but I, you know, absolutely, if it were less expensive, you know, uh, I would maybe be taking my kids more often. I mean, I, I can see that, but I, I don't see any way that at $10 a month with no cap, this business will ever make sense. You can't make that math pencil out. And so please, like ClassPass, get over the transition to a more profitable business model that actually has a 
hope of working. Well, that's like that's in the, the next nineteen days until you run out of cash. Well, that's the problem, right? Is that Netflix is like the only company that can pull off raising their prices. Amazon Maybe, Prime. Well, and Amazon Prime. Well, uh, shocker, two companies that have 100 million plus users locked in. Yeah, right? and Uber via tips. I mean, like the, some companies can just at scale, but you have to reach an amazing amount of scale and consumer buy-in and have it. And I, what, I don't know what scale is in the movie business. I mean, I think they were trying to get to 5 million people by the end of this year, and they sort of thought they were going to account for like 10% of ticket sales. I, I also see no... Uh, no benefits to scaling this business. What do you get uh, at, at the marginal customer level? The, I don't see the benefits of scale. It's still each customer still costs you the same amount of money to acquire. The amount, the consumption they have still costs you. It's a, it's a variable. F- I mean, like, sure. It's like the, the better the product, the worse the business. <laughs> or you don't get any leverage. The only thing I could see, and I really don't know this stuff at all, uh, but you know, like AMC, I think, has already said that we would never give these guys a cut. But if you do get people into the, com- you know, into the building and there's you know, some sort of revenue share there, then I could potentially see it working. Yeah, because I, I don't go to movies very often, but I have a rule. If I do go, I can buy as much milk duds and other junk as I want because I'm there like every six months or whatever. Um, that's a lot more than movie tickets. What actually. would you charge for Movie Pass monthly if Me? you were the CEO of Helios and Mathers? And I wasn't allowed to just shut it down. Oh, okay. Mm. Um, well, I I would I would throw in two tiers. I would uh, say yeah, absolutely tiers. Yeah. Three yeah, tiers. Yeah. yeah, three tiers. Ten bucks a month for two movies. Twenty bucks a month for five, or fifty bucks a month for unlimited. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there you go. Now there now it go, makes some sense. You'll have twenty four days worth of cash instead, and you have to give a shot. <laughs> All right. Well. Uh, on that note, let's uh, we can talk more about see if Helios and Matheson is actually alive next week. So. All right, everyone. We want to say a special thanks to our producer, TechCrunch's own Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickavet. Thank you to Katie Roof. Thank you to Matthew Lindley. And thank you to you for leaving us that five-star iTunes review. That's Equity. We'll see you all next Friday. Hey.